He always seems to get involved, doesn't he? I'm telling you, too many coconuts have hit him right on top of the skull. Well, I think uh, Anthony will be a great acquisition. He can do it all. Avery, whose show is this? Welcome, everybody, to the Anthony Irwin Show. I'm Anthony Irwin. In a second, I'm going to be joined by Chris Herring of Sports Illustrated. Uh, he and I are going to discuss the league in general heading into it. He wrote a good column, I thought, on uh, the vaccination topic. He also is writing a book or wrote a book. Releasing, He is releasing a book in January about the 90s Knicks. So he and I discuss Pat Riley uh, and, and the role that Riley has played, not just in with those Knicks, but the Lakers and in the heat as well. So uh, really fun conversation that we're going to get to there. Just a couple quick thoughts from that preseason game. I think it's pretty clear, uh, given what we've seen so far and the lineups that the Lakers have been forced into because LeBron hasn't played in a preseason game, that the Lakers probably need a wing. Uh, they are still waiting on Trevor Ariza, and Carmelo Anthony is the only other you know full-sized wing that they have. They technically have Kent Bazemore, but... He's in that tweener, shooting guard wing type of mold. Wayne Ellington is basically predominantly a uh, shooting guard at this point. But you know what? Like with the way that Malik Monk has been playing, and he once again impressed. Uh, he uh, he being Wayne Ellington could maybe slide down to the three occasionally, provided that LeBron and Anthony Davis are there, so that you could have lineups with like Russ, uh, Russ Monk. Ellington or Bazemore, and then LeBron and AD. So, you know, a couple options at the Lakers that they have there, and, and and I'll have a few more thoughts as I go a little bit more in depth on tonight's lowdown. Uh, but just in general, to be expected, the Suns, even though they weren't playing or they were playing without Devin Booker, uh, they they were certainly a more, they, they have a lot more consistently consistency coming over from one season to the other. Uh, other note on this one, Jay Crowder, go bleep yourself. All right, that's going to send us to the conversation that I just had with Chris Herring. I am joined today by uh, somebody who I hold in in really freaking high regard. Uh, he is one of my favorite writers out there, period. He has a book coming out that I cannot wait to get to read. Um, his name is Chris Herring. He is of Sports Illustrated. Uh, he's their senior writer over there. He also co-hosts the Open Floor podcast uh, over there as well. The book that I just mentioned coming out is Blood in the Garden, The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. We're definitely going to uh, discuss that stuff. Um, I, I just want to ask, like, how, how you doing, man? Thank you very much for hopping on. I appreciate you. I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I'm trying really hard not to overextend myself, but I I don't know. I always enjoy podcasting with the, the Lakers folks and uh so make an exception for today to, to speak with you. How are you doing? I'm uh, I'm I'm doing all right. I'm I'm happy to hear that I'm one of the the, the few Lakers people <laughs> that you make that exception for. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta make an exception. And you it's funny, I feel like I'm overexposed on the East Coast with the Knicks book and I'm on all their podcasts. I'm like, let me let me bother the people that are on the West Coast or that listen to the West Coast stuff. So well, it's such a natural link, right? With Pat Riley and, and sure. yeah, I mean, it's just, he's, he's in my opinion, one of the coolest people to people to have ever lived. So like, I can't wait to, to get to that stuff. Um, let's start with those Lakers though. 
you're a national senior writer for Sports Illustrated, so I'm sure you're hearing all kinds of stuff, all kinds of league chatter. Um, the Lakers, as it stands right now, are the heavy betting favorites to come out of the West. And uh, in my opinion, slightly biased, uh, I consider them the most uh, talented of the teams on the West Coast. And so long as Kyrie Irving looks like he's only going to play half of the games this season, I consider the Lakers potentially the most talented team with that being a case. So I'm just kind of curious, like just based off of the things that you're hearing and the way that you analyze the game as well, where do you have the Lakers sitting so heading into the season? Yeah, I, I think I'm a little bit lower on them than that. Um, mm-hmm. I understand where that thinking comes from. Uh, I mean, even if you're not a fan of Russell Westbrook, which I don't particularly care. I've always said he's one of my more what I think is one of the more fun players to watch in basketball period, sports period. Yeah. Um, But regardless of how you feel about him, he's talented. I mean, even when he's, you can't just, I think a lot of times talent is the idea that you can't do what that person can do and, you know, love him, hate him, be indifferent to him. A lot of people cannot do what Russell Westbrook does. So, (laughs) I mean, there's more talent on that roster. There's more high end talent on that roster than there was last year. That said, and I guess this to some extent is what I would be curious about, uh, within the fan base there is um, would people have rather had a, a, a quote unquote third star in the ilk of the ilk of Russell Westbrook, as opposed to having the depth that they had last year. Um, and I know that they went out and kind of replaced some of that depth. I don't know how people feel about an Ellington or what have you, as opposed to a KCP or a Caruso or, or, or what have you. Um that time will tell with that, but I, I, I tend to think those pieces were pretty important, particularly as it relates to defense. I agree. Um, and I think that for me, while there might be more top end talent there than there was a year ago, and this is what I wrote about it um, several weeks ago for Sports Illustrated, I don't think it's as simple as just kind of looking at Russell Westbrook and saying he's a third star. This will make us better because he's the third star. Yeah, because obviously, and I think, you know, a lot of people would consider this point already. LeBron is really good with the ball in his hands. Uh, he's also become a lot better with the ball, uh, not in his hands. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, how much do you want Russell with the ball in his hands? And, and I think the biggest question is when the ball's not in his hands, what happens? Because generally when you're talking about a third star, this is what makes somebody like Clay Thompson so lethal when he plays next to Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. You cannot leave Clay Thompson wide open. Mm. You can't. I mean – it's, it's, it's a death wish. Um, you cannot leave. I mean, going back to the heat, you couldn't leave Chris Bosch open mm-hmm. at mid range or beyond the arc. Uh, he was not a great three point shooter, but the perception was, even if it wasn't always true, the perception was he's going to kill you if you leave him wide open there, but you also probably can't guard Dwayne Wade and LeBron James with the two guys. So it, the question is how much can the third star make other teams pay for leaving him open? Mm-hmm. I don't think Russell Westbrook punishes teams enough for doing that. The, the inherent way that you guard him a lot of times is to leave him open. And so I think a lot of people, when they think about third stars, it's all the defensive attention you don't pay to that person. Russell Westbrook does not move a whole lot off the ball. He's not cutting a whole lot to make teams pay for that. And he can't really make them pay as much as some of the other people I was mentioning before, certainly a Ray Allen uh, mm-hmm. with the Celtics or something. He can't make teams pay in that way. Every now and then he can get hot, um, but generally you want him going to the basket, which means the ball's not going to be in LeBron's hands as much as it would be otherwise. And that might be a good thing. You, you want to cut down on the possibilities that LeBron gets hurt 
kind of freak player or anything else. But uh, it's interesting to me from that standpoint. I think that is kind of what everything hinges on. I could absolutely see it working. Um, I think it's more likely that the Lakers probably finish um, somewhere like second, third in the mm-hmm. West. Uh, you know, I would hope that they're not too worried about the regular season as far as these guys playing a whole lot of minutes. Uh, you, you obviously want them to play if they're healthy, but not to overextend it. They have enough injury histories already. Even Russ, that's true of. Um, even if he plays through it, he had a really rough first half of the year. So you don't want to overextend these guys. And I think as long as they're healthy, you feel pretty good about what you have. But I think that that question will determine whether we're talking about the Lakers, the 2022 Lakers as champs, or if we're talking about the Lakers as maybe having made a mistake and making the trade for Russell Westbrook. Yeah, I I, I've had a few guests on and then obviously, you know, doing a, a daily show and then writing and talking about the Lakers as often as I can. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of time spent thinking about this team and the way that I would kind of summarize it is they raised their ceiling by trading for Russell Westbrook, but also potentially low, lowered their floor. Mm. Right. Cause like, if I, if I look at, if I look at normal, like, you know, third best players, if it isn't a third star, but third best players, that player fits, right? right? And and if it's a third best player, that player doesn't necessarily have to play all the time. There isn't like a it, going into it. There isn't the expectation that that person is going to get star type minutes. Russell Westbrook is going going to expend uh, expect star type minutes sure. and then a star type role down the stretches of games, which is like you're talking about. Do you want the hand the ball in Russell Westbrook's hands when? The alternative is having the ball in, in uh, LeBron James's hands. And then there's, you know, Anthony Davis, who is decent with the ball in his hands as well, you know, in pinch post situations and stuff. And so, like, yeah, I think I think if it works, the Lakers are better than they were last year. If Russell Westbrook commits to setting more than 19 screens over the course of a season, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, you know, that the Lakers are, oh. might be slightly better than last year, but if he doesn't, and if he goes back to like the habits that he's had his entire and most, by the way, all dominant players have had over the course of, you know, recent history where you have such, you know, heliocentric offenses, like those players develop habits because those offenses need them to have the ball in their hands. And it's kind of difficult to adjust to like, they don't need me to have the ball in my hands as often. So yeah, that I, I agree with you completely as far as like where I could see the Lakers landing and what is kind of at stake. And that's, what's so fascinating about this Lakers season is like, not only did they make this big gamble trading for Russell Westbrook, but there's a ton at stake in this gamble it's not like it's not like they have this long championship window with lebron not at all not at all i I mean that and i think you raise a really good point about westbrook because while i think a lot of people there's always this thought i remember people saying this about carmelo and uh it took a while with him obviously i covered him in new york people said well all carmelo has to do is adjust to having this role when he goes to oklahoma city when he goes to Houston and this is going to be better for him and easier for him because all he has to do is adjust. And while that sounds wonderful, it's, it's, it's easier said than done. Russell Westbrook has played no shortage of roles and no shortage of roles where he's been a second guy and arguably a third guy at times, Uh, maybe not third, but um, I mean, think about the guys, this, this, you know, superstar has played with. Yeah. He's played with Kevin Durant. Mm Mm-hmm. 
played with Harden now twice. Now, granted, the first time was when they were both very young. Um, he played with Paul George. He played with Mello. And, and obviously, Mello was not, you know, the, the top of the league star that he was by the time he was Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. But Bradley Beal. He's had two other guys. And Beal led the league in scoring. So he's been in situations where you know the ball's not going to be in your hands. You know it would be beneficial to the rest of your offense if you're moving some. If you're setting screens, if you're cutting, if you're slashing. Um, so on the one hand, while it's really easy to say, man, all he's got to do is that, he hasn't done it. And he's all you have to do other... is rewire yourself. I don't know why. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, if there's one guy that I just don't trust to reprogram himself and rewire himself, it's Russ. And that's yeah. it's not to be a knock, but it's what makes him Russ. It's what makes him Russ, first of all. And, I, you know, I think Draymond is one of the other guys that I think is just wired that way uh, more mentally than it is, you know, his skill set or anything like that. But I think um, for years he's been one of the people that I'm more interested in seeing how he ages as a player just mm-hmm. because there's been so little shifting and changing as to what he is and who he is on the floor in terms of what he wants to do. Um, and that's been despite having – several different iterations of teammates uh, and teams that he's been on where he's basically, you know, for lack of a better phrase, been asked to be the second guy um, despite what his stature might be. And in this case, you know, I'm sure he sees himself as an equal to those other two guys when really, I think you would rather have the ball in their hands. Uh, certainly Davis, depending on where he's got the ball, he'd rather have the ball in his hands. And, and I mean, there's no question about LeBron just as far as running an offense, even if it's just for the sake of, uh, limiting turnovers, you'd rather have the ball in LeBron's hands, let alone just how big LeBron is compared to Russell Westbrook. It's a, it's funny that we do that almost singularly with sports, right? Well, if if somebody just rethinks their approach to this game that they have played their entire life, they could be a more effective player. It's like, Chris, if you just stopped using so many prepositional phrases, you, you'd be a better, it's like, that's not like, if I was, if I just learned how to speak coherently, I would be a better podcaster. It's just a, <laughs> just a difficult thing to learn at this stage of my life. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, in, in terms of, so, you know, we, we, we discussed the Lakers here and where they kind of fit in the West and, and, and where, how the league is currently sitting right now. Uh, do you think there's too much, noise about just the Lakers and the Nets here do you think there's another team that you know the Bucks and the Suns for example were just in the NBA finals and yet sure. it's still basically just Lakers Nets who people are predicting are going to meet in this year's finals do you, do you think there's not enough attention being paid elsewhere around the league sure no I I definitely think that's the case uh look the Suns didn't really get weaker in my opinion they they it's funny I I didn't do much of this, but I did some of it in a piece I wrote where just kind of pre-agency and what, what I expected and what I hoped for with certain teams. And I, I had kind of set out and saying that, man, JaVale McGee just seems like a really smart fit for mm-hmm. a team like Phoenix, just somebody that gives you something other than Frank Kaminsky as a backup. And <laughs> lo and behold, they, they go, man, it's rare. JaVale's jersey's going to read not Kaminsky on the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be fine. And then, by the way, they signed Kaminsky back. I was like, what are you doing? But anyway, um, you know, I, I, I just think they didn't really get weaker. I was fully expecting that they would lose someone like Cameron Payne. They didn't, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially when it sounded like Chris Paul's number was just going to be real high. They didn't lose him. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll 
figure out the stuff with Aiton. He's not a free agent right now, but they're just figuring out his extension. So assuming everybody comes back into the situation with kind of cool heads and um, not too cocky from what happened last year. I mean, that was a obviously Chris Paul being the exception. That was a pretty young team for the most part that um, some people would say they came out of nowhere. They really didn't. I mean, they were solid all year. Especially um, at the end of the year, two years ago, two seasons ago. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they've been showing this for the better part of a year and a half at this point. Um, they, I think they had one three- or four-game losing streak last year, and that was it. Uh, other than that little blip during the regular season and then obviously the end of the finals, they really did not have stretches where they struggled. And, um, I mean, it's just a legitimately solid team, probably better than solid. And, you know, I don't know how Lakers fans feel about it. They Even when Davis was there and healthy, and obviously it was hard to tell because Chris Paul was not at full strength during a lot of that series either. That probably would have been a very competitive series anyway, regardless of what happened. I, I picked the Suns to win that series before we knew what happened with the injuries. Um, I just thought that they were a team that I think you always have at least one or two teams that people are slow to pick up on how good they are because they don't watch them. I think mm-hmm. um, I think every year you've got one team like that, um, that nationally they're kind of flying under the radar. And so the Suns are one team that I would be looking out for in the West. The other team that I would look out for is the other team that finished in front of the Suns is Utah. I think Utah mm-hmm. may not result in a championship. I don't know, but there's a part of me that looks at how they got beat in the playoffs. You know, for years, the question about is Gobert a star, a superstar, whatever you want to call him, can he be played off the floor? I mean, we saw the answer to that in some cases. Um, and it's, it's still an internal debate among their fan base. I think about whether how much was Gobert to blame when they got knocked out by a Kawhi-less Clippers team, uh, you know, at least at the end of that series. Um, I, I think the Clippers kind of, I won't say they caught lightning in a bottle, but they got incredible performances from Reggie Jackson. Um, and they essentially decided to say, screw it. We're just going to go real small here. Mm-hmm. And we're going to dare Utah to either take Gobert off the floor. We're going to make life miserable for them and having to chase us. And they're too big basically. And so, Utah went and got a couple of guys. I think they could essentially be a small ball five mm-hmm. between Pascal and Rudy Gay. Yeah, um, I was not in love with their pickup to go get Hassan Whiteside. I think that is a, <laughs> a really interesting um, backup. I don't know that you'll see a bigger difference between uh, someone like Gobert and then Whiteside. <laughs> uh, you know, one versus yeah. the other, one after the other. That'll be fun. But um, I mean, I, I, I still think their defense should be really good. Um, they were able to get back to Mike Conley at a relatively reasonable number. I think that it'll be a health thing for them. I also think it'll come down to whether Donovan Mitchell can be consistent enough to be the best scorer on a team like yeah. that. I look, I I'm honestly thinking that that probably to me, neither one of those teams did anything to kind of take a step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see them winning just as many games, if not more than they did this season. I think the question for, for a team like Phoenix is they were extremely healthy last year. Do they struggle with that? Do they kind of have a, a season where they get snake bitten or mm-hmm. something like that? But if they don't, and if Utah doesn't, I think that very easily both of them could win 55 or 60 games and that they could finish ahead of the Lakers. And I think anytime a team finishes five games above some, somebody else, you have to take them seriously yeah. about the idea that they could be a contender, especially when they finished one and two last year. So I think very easily they could be. I mean, I, I understand why the Lakers are the sexier pick. They had a lot of things go wrong last year. I think that they, you know, with the rollout of the plan situation that they kind of got screwed in that sense that 
uh, you know, not that it was unfair, but just that it was really unfortunate. It, that they it had, was what it was. Yeah. They were dealing with such unfortunate injuries. And I, I remember saying a couple of times, it's always weird. It's always weird when people think you have like a pro Lakers bias. I don't give a damn about the Lakers. Not that I dislike them or love them or anything like that. But All right. That's going to do it for Chris Herring. On the- <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was saying is I, you know, I, I would tweet things that I guess you could, I was trying to be empathetic from the standpoint of saying, the last thing I want to see is the Lakers make the, the the playoffs, but do it in a way where they're having to fight to get in where LeBron yeah. and AD really aren't healthy. And they've got yeah. to jump back into the mix just to make sure they get in. And then they get hurt. Lo and behold. <laughs> and that was essentially what happened. I mean, it, it wasn't quite that cut and dry. LeBron made it through that series, but didn't really look completely himself. I remember a couple of plays where he should have had layups or should have been able to get to the rim and just blow by guys and, could not do it. And obviously Davis was what he was. That was what happened. And, um, you know, and this was a team that was first place flirting with first place right around first place when they really started to get snake bitten. And, you know, LeBron's injury was a relatively freak sort of thing. Um, So I look, I, I recognize that that's a team that at their best probably is maybe is the best team in the West, but um, I don't know how much I expect a team to be at their best when you're led by someone as old as LeBron will be when you're mm-hmm. led by somebody like Anthony Davis, who has, I, I think just to put it politely is, is relatively fragile physically. He's never had like one injury that just wipes him all the way out for a whole season, but it's always these little nicks and bruises. It's almost like it gets punched a lot in a boxing match. It's going to take yeah. a toll. And I feel like you yeah. get a lot of those with him. And then Russ, like, I, I just don't, Russ had a beautiful end of last season, but I, I don't, if he's has to be your guy, um, and he's not the number three. I don't know how much I trust it relative yeah. to you know what they are at their best. So we'll see. I, I, I think that I would put them just a little bit below those other two teams for now. What I love about like everything that you just outlined there, and it's kind of abnormal, especially in like this in uh, the player empowerment era, is like there isn't a team that is heading into the season without questions. Right. Like sure. the, the, the Warriors, when, when Katie was there, the question was like, all right, how badly are they going to beat everybody? It wasn't, it wasn't like, is, is this going to work? It was like, how, how embarrassing is it going to be for everybody else? And I'm really excited about a season where every single team top down um, has major questions facing them. You know, <laughs> Brooklyn has their questions. Uh, Milwaukee has their questions. Phoenix has their questions. And, and yeah, it's, 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 it's a really exciting season. One that like, and it makes me that much more annoyed, which kind of gets us to the next subject here about like the discussion heading into the season, not to say that it isn't important, right? Like the, 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 the vaccination conversation and, and players literally not being available potentially is something that you have to factor into the conversation heading into a season. It's just, it just sucks that the conversation heading into it feels like it's been so derailed by how players have handled this. The, 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 the loud minority has handled this, you know, and, and you wrote an article for Sports Illustrated um, talking about how this isn't a uh, this isn't just a personal decision. Vaccines are not a personal decision. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote another article, I believe, this morning. That man uh, is spitting. My goodness. <laughs> I've never heard Lord. him talk this much, but my goodness. Yeah. It, well, it's wild. I was thinking about I, I didn't want to send it in a tweet because it's something that can be so easily misconstrued. But like it's wild that there are NBA players out there right now, NBA superstars who are aligned with Ted Cruz while Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is telling them they're wrong and they aren't saying anything 
to, like, to, to rethink their stance. And, and so like, how have you taken all this in? Cause I, I'm just, I'm sitting here mind blown at how this has all gone down. So twilight zone, it is a bizarre universe that we're in right now. Um, so like you said, I, I wrote my piece on that last Friday, I think it was. And, um, you know, my editors asked me to write something. I feel like I've tried to go into hiding a little bit just with my book and, and still having to make slight edits with that. And I teach at Northwestern two days a week. And so with all these things, I'm just trying to buy myself some time really until the season starts. And I was going to write something kind of preview-ish for the season. And I'm like, none of this stuff feels like it matters. The dominant conversation in the league mm -hmm. right now is vaccination status, whether it should be or not is a different case. Um, but you do, you know, the way you put it, it it's a really, really thin minority of players that aren't vaccinated according to what the league is putting out there numbers wise. Uh, but it's a really loud minority. And I think, it, you know, these are, Anytime you're talking about max players and then also that LeBron chimes in on the conversation, it, it's a big subject all of a sudden. And um, how would I contextualize? I mean, I tried to within the story that, look, I think Kyrie is right sometimes uh, mm -hmm. on, on major issues. Or that, I really enjoyed that angle. I thank think you. It, like, that he's, not, yeah. he's not, I mean, it's, I, I understand that he's kind of been framed as this cartoon character for the last couple of years. Um, the flat earth thing was, was stupid, you know, mm -hmm. in, in my opinion, I think it, it, it's just stupid knowing the facts. Um, yeah. it should be pretty obvious. And yeah, there are elements of that that are dangerous. And I think maybe Kyrie knows that now, maybe he doesn't, he's at least apologized for it. He kind of explained that, look, when I started hearing from science teachers around the country about how much harder I was making their jobs, then I started to realize that we have a platform here. There's kind of more of a responsibility. So he says that on the one hand. And had backed down from that, or at least stopped spewing that. But this is the same sort of thing, except it's doctors and it's a deadly virus. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think what's frustrating to me is that I think people have just, for the last couple of years now, have tuned him out because of some of these more extreme stances. Um, he, he often has extreme stances. He essentially said last year that he was trying to, he was, first of all, was part of the Players Association, but secondly, was trying to, and I think the important part of it is that he was injured. So he wasn't able to play in the bubble last year, but while he was injured was essentially arguing to, with his fellow players that they should sit out the bubble, that they should not even mm -hmm. go to the bubble um, because there were too many unresolved questions about essentially whether or not that was the right thing to do in the midst of trying to draw attention to social justice or injustice. And I think most people wrote that off as Kyrie just kind of being a weirdo and, and someone that doesn't think things through. Maybe he didn't have every answer when he suggested that, but I thought it was really interesting that after he suggested it and after the Jacob Blake shooting, um, which happened, you know, in a suburb of, of Milwaukee, I guess you could also call it a suburb of Chicago, mm -hmm. that the Bucks players, at least George Hill, who's probably the most vocal of those Bucks players, just straight up said, we really shouldn't have come to the bubble. Like, yeah, we didn't change anything by doing this, at least not on that subject. And, you know, whether that was exactly what Kyrie was saying beforehand, I'm not sure. But even if you're looking at it and just subscribing to the broken clock is right twice a day sort of theory, Kyrie is right. Sometimes he, he obviously had kind of said that I'm hopeful that there won't be, you know, belligerence or racism that comes about about me coming back to Boston for the first time. And within two days of that, somebody threw a bottle at his head as he was walking yeah. into the tunnel. So I mean, it's a pretty it's, safe prediction. Yeah. So it's 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 
the guy's not always off the mark. In my opinion, he's really off the mark here. But I think the biggest thing, there's so many issues with this and avenues with this, but I think the biggest thing is that these are guys in some cases that um, that are being asked to kind of give their opinion on something that, you know, I don't think we need to go to them for their opinion all the mm. time. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I'm not going to knock college education versus not, but I will say, you know, I have people in my own family that I can't understand. I will have a full blown text message or conversation with them and they run out of answers at a certain point as to why they won't get the vaccine. I don't know that there's a good reason. I was, I wasn't hesitant to the point that I felt like I was never going to get the vaccination. But when this first rolled out, I was like, I'm going to take my time just a little bit because I don't, you know, whether it's trusting the previous administration or how yeah. quickly it was rolled out or, and this is what I tried to throw into my article as well. Um, black people in this country have kind yeah, of been to some mm-hmm. extent know, sometimes. And I, so I understand the idea of people being more hesitant in the black community. There's a lot of miseducation in the black community as well, just like there is in a lot of rabbit holes and YouTubes and everything else. But for me, I'm Mexican. It's a big thing with, 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 with my heritage too. Like the conversations that I have with my family, it's, it's the same stuff where I don't know how to say, I don't know how to change a mind and you're not going to change a mind when it's a deep rooted thing. It's a part of a culture in in some cases. And it's, it's sad because it's, uh, these are people that you love and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's frustrated me a little bit to see the tone of the, Look, I, I'm frustrated by it too. It's why I wrote the story. But to sometimes see the tone of the way that largely the white, primarily white male dominated media talks mm-hmm. about people that in a lot of cases are, are young, um, that, you know, that might not have had really the same upbringing that we all had, that they're going to be fed miseducation, that they're going to run in circles that, you know, that it's kind of popular to have that opinion. And Frankly, you know, I think LeBron was kind of getting skewered last week, too. I was slower to do that because at least in my from my point of view, if he was doing his own research or getting research from other people, he got the vaccine. And that should be the goal is that Mm -hmm. someone gets it eventually. My frustration is that if you do the research, first of all, what research are you doing? How are you doing that research? Mm -hmm. And how is it going to be more thorough than what education specialists, experts, doctors are telling you and, and yeah. why would you want research from people that don't have that sort of background for something like this? But also I think most of us have had vaccinations before. And I think that's really my biggest thing is like, how's this different? My thought on how it's different is that it was sped through a lot faster because Absolutely. It, was, it was killing so many people. But as long as you don't see people walking down the street, COVID like, was. Just, just to be clear, COVID was killing so many people. Not the vaccine was killing. Yes. So many Thank yeah. you for clarifying that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But my, my thing is, unless you see people walking down the street doing like the thriller dance or something and they're zombies, what are what are people uh, afraid of? And, and yeah. how are you more afraid of that than you are of the virus, which if you get it and you don't have the vaccination, it's more likely to kill you. Yeah. That you're, I think it's been shown that you're more likely to spread it. You can still spread it with the vaccine, but you're more likely to spread it and get it if you don't have it. So I... To me, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm at a loss for why, you know, Draymond said, why are they pushing this art? It's killing a lot of people. Period. That was a tough quote. That was a- <laughs> no, it was a really bad quote. Yeah. It, it was, he very much kind of did the whole thing where it was almost like, you know, are we going to say that we should outlaw cars too, because people get in fatal accidents and it's like, or, you know, the idea of seatbelts, 
if that was contagious, we probably would have that set. Right. He compared yeah. it to pregnancies and letting people take days off for pregnancies. No, that's different. Like it's yeah. not the same thing. So I, and I don't know if people realize or if some of these players realize how unintelligent that sounds. Um, or if LeBron, when he retweets people that he supports in the league, if mm-hmm. he realizes how unintelligent that sounds, um, you know, I don't know. I, I Maybe there's a, a more intelligent argument that I just haven't heard that people have when they do their own research or how they do it or what they're doing for their research. Because I, I, I the one thing I will concede is that I was more okay with what LeBron said because he said, I did my own research and then I got the vaccine. Right. Um, I, I think I am struggling with people that do their own research and don't come around to that conclusion. But if someone were doing real actual research, then I, I, it's hard to see how you wouldn't like listening to Wiggins talk yesterday. I'm like, uh, I don't Another know that you did any research on this. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, it, it is, I, I do see how that idea of, if you want to call it group think or the idea that everybody is saying you have to do this, it does sound weird. But again, if the alternative is like letting people die forever right. because of not doing it, then like to me, that's a pretty easy call. It's an unselfish call. Um, it'll be fascinating to see what Kyrie does because I, yeah. it's hard to imagine anybody leaving that much money on the table, but he's the biggest wild card the league has. So I don't, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. What do you think of this from like a, a labor dispute point of view? Because I think this is something that like outside of Wiggins, the, the players who have done the whole, it's your body, it's your choice. It's not for me to say, you know, all this stuff. There are a lot of labor people, a lot of people who have been in the, in the, in the players union, right? Kyrie is in it. LeBron James was, was the VP. Chris Paul just this morning with Stephen A. Smith echoed a lot of the same sentiment. He was the president or is the president, no, was the president. Um, and, and I, 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 I can, to a certain extent, understand a, a, a union, a workforce union saying, we aren't okay with you mandating things to do with our bodies. This is different, right? Because we, you know, vaccines are mandated in all kinds of workforces, polio. And when you go to school and all this stuff too, like that is, that is a part of sometimes being in a union is doing the things that are for the betterment of the, of the union workforce. Uh, Do you think that, how big a factor do you think that has been here? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I've said this before. This is going to be a, a strange analogy, but I, 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 I tweet about this a decent amount, considering that it's not central to what I write about or what I, you know, what I talk about most of the time. Um, police unions sometimes not being able to call out their own yeah. bad apples. Um, mm-hmm. That no matter what is done, it could be the George Floyd incident, um, but they just will not call it out. And you know, and and I think that that's part of the problem. Um, I get that the union has to back players. That's their job. But in a situation where, again, we're talking about life, they're protecting the players body. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, I get that it's the player's body, but at a certain point, if this is the way we think we can keep the whole league safe. Right. And that we can try to running (laughs) like safe and and running (laughs) and and running. uh, Cause I mean, there's a lot of money lost. I mean, I still think we're playing catch up from all the money that was lost a year and a half ago, which, I mean, the players want to get upset about having to go back and, you know, basically have the league start back up on Christmas two months later, which I agreed. I thought it was ridiculous that they were starting two months later. Certainly the Lakers fans and the Lakers themselves probably felt a certain type of way about that. Okay. Well, it would sure be helpful if y'all got vaccinated so that the league wouldn't have to do stuff like that to protect your money. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, so it kind of goes both ways. Um, 
And look, you have every right in this country to not get vaccinated as of right now. You know, and I imagine it'll probably stay that way within certain circles. But if the league decides they're going to put their foot down and make life really uncomfortable for you, the same way that so many industries are, schools, uh, federal employees, mm -hmm. healthcare workers, um, air, airline workers. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a lot of groups at this point. So the idea that basketball players wouldn't be exempt from that Okay, I mean, you you can you can sit out if you want to, but you're going to lose money. I mean, it's like this. Yeah. I don't know what other way around that there is. That's a better deal than what a lot of people get. A lot of people would just get fired um, yeah. in other industries, which is happening. So, I mean, obviously, you know, if Kyrie decided he didn't want to play in Brooklyn, you could get around the problem that way too by going to a different team where mm -hmm. you're not going to have to miss as many games for that reason or miss any game for that reason. Um, but it's, I mean, it, you know, people say that people's rights are being taken away. No, you have the right to not do it, but yeah, it's still a choice. You that's can the way it the wrong, you can make like the wrong choice, choice though. to not pay my taxes too, yeah. but I'm going to face the ramifications that come with that. I know what I'm doing. So uh, it, it's, I, I get that it's a, it's a hot button issue. Um, it'll be fascinating again to see what Kyrie does. I can't quite imagine him not getting the vaccination, but if he feels that strongly about it, maybe he requests out of Brooklyn and that would be a massive, massive story. If mm -hmm. that were to happen. Uh, but uh, even today, I want to say I, I was seeing quotes from Kevin Durant about saying that he just kind of hopes it'll sign on and, and get the vaccination. It's basically what it sounded like he was saying that yeah. he hopes Kyrie comes around on that. But he doesn't know either. And it's like, I, I mean, I think even the people closest to Kyrie kind of yeah. don't know what way he's leaning with this or what he's going to do. I'm not even sure Kyrie does, given certain times of the day. Like, I think it, it's a, you know, for him, like, we, we, we got to move on here, but like what I found interesting in your piece and, and I thought you made a really good point was that like he did not just walk back the flat air stuff, but he also acknowledged that this is something like his platform really impacts people, especially young people out there. And and I think for for in this case, if Kyrie legitimately thinks that he's in the right, which like if you listen to Andrew Wiggins, he legitimately thinks he's the protagonist in the story. If Kyrie legitimately thinks that he's right and he has access to this research that uh, is more useful than everything that we know about the vaccine and its impactfulness, one, he needs to share it, right? If he, it, like, he would, he would, he would, you would think that the conclusion he would come to is that he would have to share it, which he hasn't, and then, and then two, like, he would do so with understanding the impact that that might have on everybody, and and that's why it's so it's been so interesting that the approach that he's had to this, where he's just like please respect my privacy. And it's like, it's not a private matter. It's literally public health. Public is right there in the name. Um, let's, let's move on really quickly. Cause I got to talk to you about your book. It is blood in the garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s, New York, Nick, you can pre-sale it now. You can order it right now, which I plan on doing right now, not right now, right now, but like after we're done here. And you can and do it for free, relatively speaking too. It's yeah. uh, pre-orders don't, cost you anything until after mm -hmm. it's shipped. And so, you know, if you, got, if you change your mind, if you just, if I decide to be an anti-vaxxer um, and you guys hate me for it, <laughs> you've got three months, more than three months to change your mind on it, cancel it. But, um, you know, it's not something you're getting charged well, for. Pre-orders help the authors a ton too. First time authors, it helps us a ton to just mm -hmm. convince what booksellers should be putting on their, their shelves based on how much interest there is in the book. So do go out and pre-order it. I will if you promise to sign it uh, to my favorite Lakers podcaster like that. Then then uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're gonna have me pissing people off over there, but I'll do it. <laughs> um, but it it is uh, it is going to release on January 18th of of this upcoming year.
Um, I want to start here because the, like we said earlier, well, no, two points that I, the, the actual starting point that I want to, uh, that I want to go with here. We saw a clip the other night of Steph Curry uh, jumping into a defender. Why not? Like he wound up throwing the ball up with his left hand and it hit the top of the backboard and no call was made. And all of NBA Twitter rejoiced. <laughs> and, and so like, and so <laughs> uh, I, you just spent, you know, un, uh, uncountable uh, hours researching that era, the 1990s, like hand checking, your 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 the title of your book literally has blood in it, <laughs> and so like so like you you go from spending so much time you know going down the rabbit holes and seeing that type of basketball played, and then you go you you arrive now back here at the type of basketball that was being played now, where you have players jumping into defenders, stopping abruptly to to try to get calls and all of these things, like. Is it frustrating to you to watch that, or like, like how happy were you to see this this uh, this new set of rules that they aren't going to be set of calls that they aren't going to be making? Yeah, no, it, it's it, it's not. It wasn't frustrating to me because of anything that I was doing with my book. Uh, obviously, the Knicks were of the '90s were extremely yeah. physical, and I mean the research that I did, the interviews I did, the rules were essentially changed because of those Knicks teams. <laughs> Uh, which yeah. I don't know that, you know, people have asked like, why are you writing a book about a team that didn't win? They literally changed the league because yeah. of that team, more or less. Uh, you want to make an argument that it was them and the Pat Riley era heat. Okay. But that was him replicating the team he just had in New York um, mm-hmm. where they would lead the league in flagrant fouls by a country mile. Charles Oakley would have more than twice as many flagrants as the next closest person. I mean, yeah. they had, they implemented the flagrant points because of Charles Oakley. So uh, that's the team I was writing about and, you know, researching for two and a half years. My opinion on the current rules has nothing to do with that. I look and I I, kind of tip my hat to, I wouldn't really say Steph, but Harden and Luca and Trey, Mm -hmm. um, because they they essentially found loopholes in the rules. Harden has been a master at that for years Mm -hmm. where he takes advantage of something that is not explicitly outlawed by the rules. KD has done it before, too. Um, with the rip through and everything else, yep. they're, they're smart. And, and then, you know, the league, it's kind of like anything. It's like, you know, if you're getting around tax laws and you find loopholes, uh, Donald Trump for years said that that's all he felt like he was doing is just finding loopholes to basically prop up his businesses and, and to mm-hmm. cite certain losses uh, to be able to keep his money and not have to pay taxes. To some extent, within reason for a while, I think all you can do is tip your hat. To someone doing that. I think it's a little different when someone becomes president, but um, yeah, but Especially for if you know, taxes is the thing that a little <laughs> different, yeah. And it's funny because I've yeah. always thought that, but someone when I was tweeting about like, thank God that they're now not calling these fouls, someone was and I said something about like people just kind of violating these loopholes constantly or using these loopholes. Someone was like, Yeah, it's like taxes, and I was like, Oh god, because it made immediately made me think of government, which I'm I don't know. The last few years have been rough. Anyway, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm really happy that they got rid of it, though, just because I think it, it, it makes for cleaner basketball. I think it's more honest basketball. Yeah. Um, it, it's the sort of stuff that does turn people off from the game, that does get annoying to watch, that gets away from just having the best players in the world actually go for shot making as opposed to just trying to draw fouls. The best people will still draw fouls. Trey Young will still draw plenty of fouls. They'll just be done in a more legitimate way that's not kind of BS. And uh, yeah. but it's not that I was, you know, 
it had nothing to do with the previous rules, but just I think wanting to watch better, more honest basketball. And it wasn't Trey or Harden or Lucas' fault. It was that the league didn't have anything saying you couldn't do it. So now there is. And I, I don't think it'll take long for people to adjust to it. You'll see some of the junk stuff, and you'll probably see some fouls called because of it, but I don't think there'll be as much, which will be really nice. Yeah, I think these guys are so talented that they're going to find a way to be really good sure. anyway. <laughs> sure. Absolutely, and that's the great part of it. It'll be yeah. better basketball because of that. Right. Yeah, it's funny because it's, it's you know, if the league just responded to Trey and Luca and and those players who found those in Harden who found those loopholes, uh, they did so back in the '90s when they closed the loopholes. Where the Knicks was just like, "Oh yeah, if we just beat the crap out of everybody, like we're gonna be way better than me." Yeah. So, yeah. so the league basically back then said, "Like, all right, we gotta close those loopholes. We gotta figure out a way to make it so they go back to playing basketball and not just like beating the shit out of everybody that that they're playing." Um, and it, and it, that's that's kind of a fun way to to kind of look at the ebbs and the flows of of a, of the evolution of the game. Um, sure. What's your what's your best Pat Riley is being really cool story. Like, did you, did you arrive? Like, is there anything that when you were, when you were doing your research and your, cause again, like the guy goes from being a color commentator for the Lakers to being the head coach and, and one of the architects of the Showtime Lakers era. And then he goes to, to New York and he winds up being one of the uh, key parts of one of the most, if not the most popular stretch of New York's basketball ever. And he goes to Miami and he winds up being twice now the architect of two of the most, uh, of the most popular stretches in that franchise's history. So the guy like is in, in, in incredible executive and incredible basketball mind, but he's also a freaking G like, I, I, I like everything about the guy just seems really smooth. So like, is there anything that, that stuck out to you is like Pat Riley being Pat Riley. Yeah, there are a lot of things. Um, I, I probably did as much reporting on him. I would say Anthony Mason was the guy that I might have spent the most time talking to the most people. He's not here anymore. And so I thought mm-hmm. there was more of a responsibility to really dig into his story with people that cared about him and that even people that knew him just a little bit that weren't his teammates. Um, outside of that, I, I felt like the most important character in my book was Pat Riley. Mm-hmm. Uh, my literary agent looked at the cover that we mocked up and that we designed, which turned out to be the final cover. He's like, are you sure you want Riley on the cover? And I just kind of, kind of thought for him, yes. like, what kind of question <laughs> is that? Like, even when he wasn't with the Knicks anymore, he yeah. was their arch enemy. So like he has to yeah. be, he defined their era then too, by being with Miami and for a rivalry where they played in the playoffs four straight years. And each of those four years, the series went the distance um, and they hated each other and they fought every, literally fought basically every year. You know, whether it was Jeff Van Gundy sliding down someone's leg or uh, P.J. Brown flipping Charlie Ward in the air. I mean, these teams hated each other. Mm -hmm. And it might have been the most, you know, the biggest blood feud in the league during the 90s. Maybe not the most remembered rivalry, but maybe the one where the teams just hated each other the most. And so, um, you know, so I think that Riley is, is fascinating. I went to Schenectady where he grew up for a few days to try to go speak with childhood friends and see where he grew up and where he lived. Um, could I pick one anecdote? I mean, I can give you a couple that are somewhat tied to the Lakers. Um, I talked to a guy named Swin Nader who was there during the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had heard from a couple people, I think the, the Knicks chaplain. So the person that prays with the players mm-hmm. before the games, essentially in chapel had told me, he was like, if you talk to this one guy from the Lakers, he'll tell you that Pat essentially discouraged him from reading his Bible. And I was like, what? 
<laughs> like on a team flight, Pat essentially noticed that Swin Nader um, had a Bible with him and would read it or would look at it or would have it on the seat. And he didn't say anything in that moment, but there was a time later in his tenure with the, uh, with the Lakers that he called Swin over during a flight and was talking to him about generally about how the season was going. And then as Swin was about to go back to the seat, he said, you know, um, what do you use that Bible for? Like, why do you bring it with you? And, you know, Sven was like a pretty religious person. I kind of, that's what yeah. I believe. That's, so that's fine. I just, I just maybe don't focus on it too much because I worry that it'll kind of take away your physicality that maybe it'll make you oh. too, essentially. Huh. And I heard really similar things. I had asked the chaplain basically because in my reporting, what I found is that Pat, basically, I think he had a lot of paranoia coming out of those Lakers years. Mm-hmm. Um, when he joined the Knicks, he also was kind of interesting. He, he wanted a job pretty badly, um, very clearly. A lot of times when you see announcers that leave coaching for a year or two and then go back to it, they're, they're very muted on criticizing teams, criticizing mm-hmm. coaches because they still want to be able to get back into the league. And so uh, Peter Vesey was telling me that Pat, I actually don't think I have this in the book, that Pat, he felt like Pat was really close to getting let go of by NBC because he was so muted and wouldn't say anything <laughs> one way or the other about any teams, yeah. particularly the Knicks, because I think he knew yeah. that he would have an opportunity to go there. And so they're like, you got to give us a little bit more on each of these teams because you're just, yeah. being, you're like almost not giving any insight because you don't yeah. want to say anything. Um, but when he went to the Knicks, he wanted like full control over everything because he just kind of felt like stuff had spiraled in that last year or two with the Lakers. And so he did not want anyone around his team that could potentially be an influence psychologist mm. uh he didn't want marketing people he didn't want marv albert and clyde frazier around the team he would not let them wow. fly with the team anymore he was just so controlling over a lot of this stuff um down to the point with with the whole bible thing where the chaplain the team chaplain basically told me that there were several players that came to him and said uh we we want to come to chapel, but we're not really sure we can because we kind of feel like Pat is going to hold us against us if we do. Mm. Uh, so he was just really controlling. Now, you know, guys still went to chapel, but there was basically the chaplain explained that he worried that there was like a chilling effect that Pat had just on what guys is, not necessarily what their beliefs could be, but the idea that Pat wanted the Knicks to be extremely physical, but worried about whether religion would take some of the physicality out of what they did if they would be too calm because yeah. of that. So he was I wonder a, if he would ever give them like the old testament. Like you can't read the new testament. You have to read the <laughs> old testament. You have to be as <laughs> as brutal as possible. He was an interesting. I mean, I I really wish I could go through more of the stories. My publicity folks are like, you cannot discuss too much of the book. I'm like, fine. Yeah. But there's so much stuff. I spent a lot of time kind of explaining his transformation. I think there were some people out there that expected that he would take the Knicks and try to do what he did with the Lakers. And obviously, we weren't going to be able to do that with that group of guys. Um, so he decided to do the next best thing, which was basically he took the Pistons strategy and realized he had a, a younger guy, group of guys that could be good defenders and could be intimidating defenders. And he used that. And mm-hmm. it was a team that hardly ever really focused on offense, hardly ever practiced offense during their workouts and stuff, but were just lethal on defense yeah. and led the league in defense for three years in a row, which you rarely, I don't know that that's happened since then. And I think even looking at it, they might have the, the relative to the rest of the league. I think they had the most dominant defense in league history for a single season. I mean, they were just really, really, really Loopers. good. Um, <laughs> they, 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 yeah. yeah. And I mean, like I said, obviously you don't need me to tell you again, they, they, they changed a lot of what the league's rules were because of this team and checking um, 
the first day of the 93, 94 season, 94, 95 season, I'm sorry, um, in preseason training camp, the league was going around sending the lead official around and Rod Thorne, who was running the league's rules and stuff like that, around each team, almost like a tour through training camp to tell each team what would and wouldn't be allowed anymore when they changed the rules. And they had a video showing of like what sorts of things would not be allowed. And it just ended up being a video of all these Knicks players. Knicks like, highlight you know, checking the shit out of people, Derek Harper. And so they felt like it was, you know, that the league, the rules were targeting them specifically. And while the league will tell you, no, that's not what we were doing. Some of them will also tell you, I also understand how the Knicks would see it as us mm. doing that because the Knicks were the team that everybody thought of as really pushing the limits with all that stuff, with the hand checking, with the flagrant fouls with hanging back in the paint and essentially what a legal defense was to not be guarding anybody mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just leave guys wide open at the three-point line. So it, the, the Knicks were the cause of a lot of concern for the league. The fighting certainly you know, it was a big part of it, but Pat Riley encouraged them yeah. to do all this. Pat Riley encouraged them to foul people and hack people relentlessly to force the refs to basically rethink whether they wanted to call a foul on every single one of them, basically yeah. to kind of hypnotize the refs from being able to call the fouls. So it was, it, all of it was at Pat's, you know, at his request, at his demand. Um, but he made them a lot better for it. He put them in position to win a championship because of it. Yeah, it's, it, I, I define great coaches by their ability to mold to the talent that they have in front of them. And, you know, it, it, Riley is one of the foremost examples of that at multiple stops. It's, he's, yep. he's a fascinating guy. That's going to be a fascinating book. I cannot wait to read it. Chris, thank you very much for hopping on. I'm sure that you're crazy busy and, and, and it's going to be a really fun season ahead. As soon as I get to read this book, I hope to bring you back on here so we can talk more about it and then talk more about the season uh, that, that will at that point be about midway through. Well, I would really love that and would really appreciate it. But, but thank you for giving me a chance to, to join you today and to talk about the book a little bit too. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. That was Chris Herring again of Sports Illustrated. And make sure you guys go check out his book. Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. You can find that on Amazon and you can pre-order it right now. And then it'll be available on shelves and on Amazon January 18th. So again, check that out one more time. That is Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. He also hosts the Open Floor Pod on uh, for, for, for Sports Illustrated. You can find that everywhere you find pods. And then he is a senior writer over there at Sports Illustrated. So check out all of his work. Thanks again to Chris for hopping on. Until next week, I'm Anthony Irwin saying have a good one.